When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to the How To Academy podcast, the weekly show for and about people who think big. I'm Vas Christodoulou, one of the curators of our programme of live streams, live events and masterclasses. Last time on the podcast, we hosted Claire Fuller, winner of the 2021 Costa Novel Award. This episode stars John Preston, whose biography of the politician and media mogul Robert Maxwell won the same award in the biography category and will now go head-to-head with Claire's for the overall Costa Book of the Year. John joined us for a live stream last year to tell the jaw-dropping story of the rise and fall of one of Britain's most famous business tycoons. He was in conversation with Hannah McInnes. This feels like a bit of an unfair way to start, but I, 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 by way of introduction, we will, of course, explore Maxwell's character in much more detail over the hour. But if we didn't have an hour and you just had to summarise the man, how would you describe the character of Robert Maxwell? Well, he was someone who really came from nowhere. I mean, he came from this dirt poor little town in the west of what was then Czechoslovakia. And he essentially set out to become the the biggest media baron in the world. And he kind of nearly did it. Uh, The trouble is in in nearly doing it, he also set a chain of events which led to his personal, physical and mental disintegration, his downfall, and I guess ultimately his death. So it is a kind of extraordinary, vast parabola of a life. And what drew you to this story. It's been told before, of course, but what elements have fascinated you so much and made you want to dedicate what must have been a phenomenal amount of your time to investigating it? In fact, what happened was after a very English scandal was made, and I think before it went out, I had a meeting with the producer and he was running through possible ideas for another English scandal. And I'm pretty sure that he mentioned Maxwell. And I said, Oh, no, 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 I think that's a terrible idea. And then I went home and I thought about it and thought, actually, no, it's, it's a really good idea. And I'd always been fascinated by Maxwell because he was, a, he was this unavoidable presence in Fleet Street in the, particularly the late 1980s. And he seemed to be such a kind of bizarre amalgam of different personalities. There was part of him that seemed to have stepped out of a gangster film. There was part of him that appeared to have stepped out of a kind of Italian comic opera. He was held in kind of awe and ridicule, quite often it seemed, by the same people. And I suppose most of all, 30 years after his death, he was still seen as the embodiment of corporate villainy because he'd looted the Mirror Pension Funds and he'd done this unspeakable thing and deprived 
a lot of mirror pensioners of the prospect of a relatively tranquil and prosperous old age. And so much, as it were, black paint had been kind of tipped over his head that he'd been turned into this kind of pantomime baddie. Mm. And for all his flaws, he seemed a much more nuanced, complex, possibly more tragic figure than that. So I wanted to scrape as much of the paint off him as possible. So the tragic figure comes in many ways, but really because of his background, which, you know, he tells Parkinson on this, on this fascinating design disc, which I actually listened to today, you know, sent to from the book, but he says his past had no effect on me in any way. But throughout your book, it just feels that that is one of many lies that he told or told himself. Perhaps you could tell us about those early years, his background, and why they perhaps haunted him for the rest of his life. Well, he came from a Jewish family. The town that uh, he was born and brought up in had a large Jewish population. He was one of seven children. When he was about 15 or 16, he set off essentially to try and find his fortune. And this was at the beginning of the war. And whilst he was away, three of his siblings, both his parents and his grandfather, all died in Auschwitz. So that's, that's really the prism that you have to look at Maxwell's life through. And in a way, as you go through, you get this man who's terrified of boredom, terrified mm. of being on his own. He can't sleep. He, he can't really be alone with his thoughts. And, and you suggest that all of that comes from this idea that he's sort of fleeing these demons. I mean, extraordinarily, I think five times you write of him actually bursting into tears, mostly caught up with memories of, of, of his family and, and his past. Yes, I mean, beneath this enormous bombast and bluster, I think he was an intensely emotional man. And I think that he had terrible survivor guilt about what had happened to his family. And that was overlaid with another form of guilt, which is that uh, when he came to England, and he changed his name four times by the time he was 23, and he eventually plumped for Robert Maxwell, because it had this faintly Scottish air to it, which he quite liked. And perhaps most importantly of all, it didn't sound at all Jewish. And for years, Maxwell denied being Jewish. And then it was only in the mid 80s that he rediscovered his Judaism. And it became hugely important to him. And, and he, he did, I think, feel very guilty that there'd been so much denial in his life. I mean, it's interesting you talk there about the name changes, the identity swaps. And I think you said he changed his name four times before the age of 23. And it's again, something that comes up again and again, this idea that it was very hard to work out if there was any sort of core to him. He was a sort of a, a caricature in a way. Yes, I think so. I mean, one of the reasons he changed his name so often was because he was a spy. So there, was a, there were legitimate reasons for it. But at the same time, I think he did like to kind of cloak himself in these different identities, perhaps to the extent where he rather lost sight of who he had originally been. And he, he goes on, I mean, he's fighting, um, leads, fighting the Czech army, and he, 
he tells not just Parkinson, but I think you found in other places, he, he says that he, he was caught uh, and he had managed to escape because one of the prison guards had just one arm. Again, how could you corroborate any of his stories? Because you, you question whether any of it was, you know, how much of it was truth. Well, I mean, one of the, one of the many bizarre things about Robert Maxwell is that he was a colossal self-mythologizer. But actually, if you strip all the mythology out of his life, it's an, an, an extraordinary story in his own right. It doesn't need any of the kind of exaggeration and myth-making that went on. Nonetheless, he couldn't resist adding a few embellishments. So yes, you know, he would tell these stories and, and you could just, you can see these stories becoming more embellished the more he tells them and there'd be a kind of extra layer of detail. I mean, you know, actually kind of fraudulent detail, but it nonetheless makes it a better story. So yes, I think you know. I think like like a lot of people, he 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 became rather addicted to telling tall stories about himself. I mean, there's an extraordinary moment now I'm thinking about near the end of the book where he goes in and somebody's talking about Reagan, and he says, "Oh yes, I I met Reagan in hospital." And uh, I think it's Mike Malloy, the editor of the Mirror, goes off to discover that that's complete fabrication. Yes, I, it, uh, he, Maxwell claimed that he bumped into Reagan in some hospital somewhere in, in Europe. I don't know where. And Malloy has this, he's pretty certain that Reagan has never actually set foot outside America during the whole of the war. I think this is right, or certainly not in Europe. And he goes there and finds, sure enough, it's right. But actually, it it turns out that Reagan played this kind of um, hospital patient in a film in which his character turns out to be rather like Maxwell's. And you feel that Maxwell... He had this strange habit of kind of helping himself to bits and pieces from other people's lives. And, you know, he took the name of um, Mirror Group newspapers. He took the logo of it rather from MGM, the Hollywood studio. And he would just kind of pick and mix with his own identity. So going back a bit, um, you mentioned he was a spy. Yeah. He spent some time in Berlin. And mm. this is a sort of fascinating element, which actually was where his, his business side started, the seeds were planted there. Perhaps you could tell us a little bit about this time he spent in Berlin. You say there was this sort of darkness and a whiff of chicanery was never far away. Well, at the time, in 1946, Berlin was divided into four zones. Uh, there was a French zone, Russian zone, American zone, French, or, um, English. I think. Anyway, um, basically Maxwell, he was a, a fantastic linguist, could speak seven languages fluently by then. So he was like a kind of Harry Lyme figure in the third man. He could move from occupied zone to occupied zone, passing himself off as a native. And he was an invaluable asset as far as British intelligence were concerned. And he did, he did become a spy for them. And indeed, they actually set him up in business when he, uh, when he moved to London uh, after the war. And he probably carried on spying for them, certainly into the 1950s. 
It's, yeah, I think that it, it became kind of more on an ad hoc basis as it went on. I, in, in many respects, of course, he really wasn't cut out to be a spy because, you know, he had to dominate any room that he stepped into. So he was a complete antithesis of the kind of spy who's happiest operating in the shadows. But nonetheless, as you say, there was a time at the end of the war when he loved the kind of cloak and dagger elements of it. Mm, and, and, and in Berlin, I think that was right. That's where he met what would be his first business opportunity, selling scientific journals. Could, could tell us a little bit more about that. Was it a genuine interest in scientific journals that started that? Or was he just seeing, as you say, sort of possibly knowledge and science as a kind of commodity? He just wanted to make money. I think that as a young man, Maxwell had always dreamt of trying to secure this commodity that would that he could be able to get for next to no money that was going to be in huge demand after the war. And one day this man, uh, Maxwell, by this stage is running an allied newspaper in Berlin. This man walks into his office and says, oh, can you help me? I'm the biggest publisher of um, scientific journals in Germany and uh, haven't been able to publish anything during the war. I've now got this colossal backlog of stuff and I don't really know what to do with it. Can you help me? And Maxwell's first instinct was to chuck him out because that was pretty much his first instinct with anybody. And then he thought, hold on a minute. No, maybe this is exactly what I've been looking for. And the commodity is knowledge. And none of the academics who'd written this stuff expected to be paid much or indeed anything uh, for their research to be published. So that became the cornerstone of his publishing empire. But it, it would be very easy but nonetheless, a great oversimplification to just assume that Maxwell was solely concerned with his profit margins and had no interest in scientific research at all. That's simply not the case. He he was really passionately interested in it, and he was a great he became a great hero to these scientists. Not simply because he published their research, but you know he he was absolutely able to engage with them on their level, and there's no doubt. That the research that he published paved the way for a number of really, you know, important advances in you know physics and chemistry and medicine. So yes, he was a great pioneer in that regard. And 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 yes, you know, the fact that he made quite a lot of money out of it plainly was a factor. But it certainly wasn't the only one. No, it's fascinating. I, I you know I don't know if any people generally knew that about him. Perhaps they did. You say he effectively. Um, invented modern scientific publishing in Britain. Alongside this, and, and as as his businesses sort of grew, it was very clear from the start that this idea, you know, later this idea that he was a crook was quite true. And there's an extraordinary story, perhaps you could tell us. I, I Again, I don't know if people, if this is widely known, but he convinced the Austrian government to sign a trade agreement with a country that they made up. These were the sort of early Maxwell kind of fraudulence examples. Yes, Maxwell went into, and this was actually in the 1950s, Maxwell met, went into business with this man and they imported all this tinned meat from, I think it might have been Germany, I can't, can't honestly remember, which they thought they were going to be able to sell on for a great profit. And then the British government refused to allow him to sell it because they said that anybody who ate any of it would, would immediately contract botulism and quite possibly die. So Maxwell and his business partner do this brilliant deal 
where they invent a country called Oceania. And then actually they convince some other government to then sell it on to Oceania. I can't, I can't actually remember what the details were, but it was just it's a kind of extraordinary instance of Maxwell being completely unfazed by things that would have just absolutely, you know, caused anybody else to just kind of, you know, wring their hands and weep in despair. Uh, you know, Maxwell just kind of blithely, you know, swung his way through these purportedly insurmountable difficulties. And he really did that quite often. And yes, as you say, he did also fly pretty close to the wind while he was doing so. So Maxwell, if we were sticking with Maxwell, you could call him the crook. I think the crook was the word of um, one Rupert Murdoch, who he nearly, the first time they met, they nearly went into business together, selling encyclopedias. Tell us about that story. Maxwell and Murdoch first met in Australia in 1963, and Maxwell was looking for a business partner to sell encyclopedias. He had this kind of mania for encyclopedias at one time, partly because they were also a great cash cow, because anyone um, who subscribed to an encyclopedia would be tied into a contract for, in some cases, years, if not decades, while this thing came out. And so he went to see Murdoch, who was a kind of fledgling newspaper publisher in Australia. And Murdoch, by his own admission, was really kind of very taken with, uh, with Maxwell and um, agrees to stump up a million Australian dollars, and they're going to go into partnership together and sell these encyclopedias all over Australia, Southeast Asia, all the rest of it. And the plan is that Murdoch is going to fly to the UK a couple of months later, sign the contract, and they're going to go into business. But before the contract is signed, Murdoch has lunch with a friend of his who's a publisher. And he's telling them this about this great deal that he's about to do with this extraordinary man, Maxwell. And much to his surprise, this publisher friend of his starts laughing and, and Murdoch's going, whoa, whoa, hold on, what's so funny? And it turns out that the encyclopedias, which Maxwell is, try is trying to get Murdoch to pay a million Australian dollars for, are in fact bankrupt stock that he's got for nothing. And he's trying to, you know, he's basically trying to offload them onto, uh, onto Murdoch. And from that moment on, Murdoch is kind of quite amused by this and thinks, oh, well, you know, he's just a crook and we're never going to have anything more to do with one another. But as it turns out, their fates are kind of entwined for more or less the next 30 years. And those entwined fates make for a fascinating story. I mean, they become the sort of two biggest, as you call them, power brokers in, in British politics. They both these huge titans in the media world. But I mean, you say that Maxwell was essentially upset. I think he was quite obsessed with with Murdoch and he was always trying to call him up every time he had any sort of a success. He wants success. He wanted somebody to let Murdoch know as if he needed his craved his approval or, or mm. wanted him to be envious. But they, I think essentially Murdoch sort of beat him in three different wars to, to take well, over. Well, more, yeah. I mean, more, actually. I mean, every time Maxwell tried to buy a paper, Murdoch would end up getting it. And it drove Maxwell absolutely nuts. And he came to see Murdoch as his kind of nemesis, really. And as far as Murdoch was concerned, Maxwell was this kind of irritant 
that he could never quite manage to brush off, but he never particularly saw as a threat. I mean, it used to infuriate Murdoch that their names would be mentioned in the same breath. And the fact they shared the same initials was made it even worse. But yes, I mean, I think that for Maxwell, you're right that I think that, uh, that he did on some level crave Murdoch's approval. And I remember Maxwell's son, Ian, who was very helpful to me when I was researching the book. I remember him saying to me once, what you have to realize is that there was a point at which my father and Rupert Murdoch were the only two people in the world breathing the same air. So you have this kind of extraordinary image of them kind of slugging it out on the top of Mount Everest. And he bought the mirror, of course. Yeah. One of the chapters, I mean, there's so much we, we could talk about and people will read it in the book, but one of the chapters you, you call madness, which really is a, it encapsulates the atmosphere at the mirror under Maxwell. For example, the vanity. His photo, I think you say, was in the paper a hundred times in the first six months. And he had a complete sort of lack of any sense of absurdity. Perhaps you could describe the sort of sense of what the mirror was like under him. Well, the, <laughs> the mirror, to a large extent, he transformed the mirror. I mean, you know, he, made, he turned it back. He made it a, a more profitable paper. He kind of paved the way for Murdoch. I mean, he took on the unions and to some extent paved the way for Murdoch moving his operations to whopping and breaking the stranglehold of the unions on, in Fleet Street. And he was to some extent quite a popular proprietor of the mirror because he would do things like reintroduce. There was this bizarre tradition at the mirror. Well, there had been this bizarre tradition at the mirror that every week <laughs> this elderly man in a kind of once white linen jacket would push this trolley around um, containing huge amounts of alcohol. And all the executives on the paper would be given a weekly alcohol allowance. And it was a lot, you know, I mean, there were several bottles of wine each and, and no one knew if there was a kind of maximum allowance or at least if there was, nobody would ever managed to exceed it. So they kind of loved that side of him and Maxwell did adore the company of journalists. You know, he loved that sort of old-fashioned Damon Runyon-esque world, and he loved the kind of bad behavior and the dissipation. And indeed, it kind of fed into his love of myth-making as well. But at the same time, you know, he also, as you say, he did turn the paper into a bit of a joke because there were a lot of photographs of himself all over it. Murdoch was particularly kind of appalled by this because, as he said, which is true, you know, you never see my photograph in any of my papers. And I think that, yeah, that, that Maxwell did see it like a kind of colossal vanity publishing operation in a way. I mean, talking about a colossal vanity, but he, he, he also, I mean, there are elements of, of sort of Trump Tower, weren't there, to his, his moving in. I mean, he set up Maxwell House furniture you say that could have belonged to kings and carpets embroidered with his initials I think he drank every single morning his cup of coffee out of a mug that said very important person yeah I, I mean Maxwell in, in many respects was a kind of forerunner of Trump in terms of that that sort of crazed self-aggrandizement and he called you know he called his headquarters Maxwell House and then Trump had Trump Tower and they would bump into one another in the 80s in New York, 
And indeed, Trump tried to buy the New York Daily News, which Maxwell did end up buying uh, in early 1991, only a few months before he died. And I think Trump was quite in awe of Maxwell. Uh, you know, he felt that here was someone who had the kind of bling factor to an even greater degree than he did. And that's true. I mean, you describe, I think, Maxwell's hairdresser is his only friend. Well, I don't think Maxwell had any... I don't really think he had any capacity for having a relationship with anyone on equal terms. He could be very considerate and, and, and kind to subordinates, but he didn't really have any friends. And the older he gets, you have this kind of strange sense of him backing himself more and more into a corner and becoming more and more lonely and isolated and pushing everyone else away, including his family. I, I would want to come to his family because it's a hugely important part of it and sort of insight into his character. But I just wondered beforehand, he, he says again in this interview, and you talk about in the book, that when Michael Parkinson, and it's to do with his family, asks him about you know, what success and, and being good at business is about, he says it's essentially about putting duty before love. And he says that he wants to have left his, he, everything he does is about leaving his mark on the world, changing the world to make it a better place. And he was, he was a sort of dedicated philanthropist, wasn't he, in many ways. Do you think he had a bigger, more compassionate vision? How did he want to change the world, do you think? I think he did have some sort of compassionate vision, yes. The difficulty is that it invariably came into conflict with his vanity and his desire for self-publicity. So he would do this thing uh, quite often of announcing that he was going to give a huge sum of money to, he bailed out the Commonwealth Games, he announced that he was going to give a huge amount of money to AIDS research and, and, and all kinds of things like that. But the, the money, I mean, and there would be this great fanfare, you know, Robert Maxwell today generously pledges, blah, you know, had to do this. But in a lot of cases, the money wasn't as forthcoming as it should have been. I mean, some money would appear, but never quite as much as he'd promised. Uh, and then he'd kind of lose interest and go off and uh, do something else. So it's very hard to work out where the genuine philanthropic interest lay. But he saw himself as a man who gets things done, he said. Yeah. And this idea of changing things or, or, or being able to sort of change society perhaps comes in you know, Maxwell, the MP. Uh, yeah. I mean, I don't know how much you feel he achieved. He, he, was, the, he was in charge of the Commons Catering Committee. Well, <laughs> I mean, Maxwell announced to uh, some neighbours of his in the late 1950s that he knew, much to their surprise, he, he came around to see them one evening and said he'd got something to tell them, and then announced that he intended to becoming prime minister. And uh, this was before he became an MP. And he did stand as uh, a Labour MP. He became Labour MP for Buckingham. And he made this, you know, big impression on the House of Commons when he arrived, partly because he, he, he insisted on giving an astonishing number of speeches. And there are these kind of instances of his fellow Labour MPs kind of vainly tugging on his jacket to try and get him to sit down and Maxwell completely ignoring them. And so he was a kind of 
tremendous blowhard, I suppose, in that respect. And, and, I, and I think partly to teach him a lesson, his fellow MPs gave him this kind of notorious poison chalice, which was to run the House of Commons Catering Committee, which was running at this huge loss. And there was widespread corruption there. And people, the, the degrees of theft were astonishing. You know, there were people walking out of, uh, out of the House of Commons with these kind of legs of lamb hidden underneath their overcoats and things like this. And Maxwell, to give him his due, made it profitable within something like a year. And no one quite knew how he'd done it. And one of the things he did was he sold off the Palace of Westminster wine cellar to an anonymous buyer for what was reputed to be a fraction of its real price, but nonetheless, thereby balancing the books. And he re refused to tell anyone who the buyer was. And it was never actually, you know, it was never kind of completely ascertained. But certainly when, you know, dinner guests would go to and dine at Maxwell's house in Eddington Hill Hall, and years afterwards, and very few of them came away without remarking on the outstanding quality of the wines that had been served with dinner. Hey there, I'm Dr. Maya Shunker, and I'm a scientist who studies human behavior. Many of us have experienced a moment in our lives that changes everything, that instantly divides our life into a before and an after. On my podcast, A Slight Change of Plans, I talk to people about navigating these moments. Their stories are full of candor and hard-won wisdom. And you'll hear from scientists who teach us how we can be more resilient in the face of change. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> I mean, one of the things you saw about them tugging him down when he's trying to do these speeches and there's a humiliation to me as a sort of theme throughout your telling of, of Maxwell's life. There's the humiliation I think he goes through. He, he sort of ignores and brushes off. He's, he's ridiculed and booed in the commons and all the way through, you know, later when he loses court cases, he, he's a sort of figure of, of ridicule. But he turns that round, I think, on the people who are most close to him as a humiliator of his family and the way he takes them down in public and you write about, I mean, in private. So he was, he, he was always, I think you say, quite a draconian father uh, and quite a harsh figure in the home. But, it, 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 you know, things turned around, perhaps you could explain, when one of his children was killed. Yes, I mean, his oldest son, Michael, who was the kind of, I suppose, designated heir, was very badly injured in a car crash when he was in his late teens and uh, was in a coma for seven years and then died. And actually, his accident coincided almost exactly with the birth of the Maxwell's ninth child, his daughter, Ghislaine. And from that moment on, the Maxwell's had been quite a happy family. And you feel that, that there's a kind of dark cloud hanging overhead from that moment on. And things are never quite the same. It's an extraordinary description that you, you give of, for example, mealtimes that are is told to you, I think, by one of his daughters. Just the, the sort of humiliation, sense of fear and dread around the table at, at Sunday lunchtime. Yeah, I mean, he would basically the he would expect the children to give little speeches on Sunday lunchtimes about what they'd done that week and what they hoped to accomplish in the week to come. And sometimes they'd have to kind of give off about the issues of the day. And one of his daughters, you're right, described to me how, you know, that sense of dread and sort of sitting there 
as Mac, the sort of searchlight beam of Maxwell's gaze moved steadily around the table, coming towards her. So yes, I think he was, he was a stern father, but he did drive, he wasn't in, in any way an indifferent father. He drove them, the children kind of ceaselessly towards self-improvement. You know, and certainly you can, you know, you can argue that he went a bit too far, but he wasn't, he wasn't a neglectful father in that sense. He had this kind of absolutely rigid vision of what he wanted them to accomplish. And he wasn't really at all tolerant if they fell short of that. I mean, he fired his son, Ian, didn't he, for failing to pick him up from the airport? <laughs> yes. And, and then he kind of reinstates him again a few months later after Ian has been sort of cast into, you know, not exactly out of darkness, but, you know, um, and Ian is then reemployed. But Maxwell said, well, but there's got to be a penalty for your misbehavior. So he cuts his salary either in half or by a third. I can't remember. So, I mean, <laughs> it's kind of these extraordinary rules that he imposed on them all. And his wife, Betty, I feel like her her memoir feeds in a lot. Perhaps I'm yeah. wrong to, to the book. Yeah. And her, her experience, her, her life with him, we see a lot through her eyes. She, it feels quite painful. She's essentially loyal to him, really right up into the end. Mm. There are moments of love you get from him, but do you think that he always did just put his duty before love? And what was their relationship like? How, how did he see it? I think one of the curious things actually is that when they first met and married, it was an extremely passionate, loving tender relationship. I mean, you read some of their letters to one another. They're extremely touching. And you feel that something strange happens to Maxwell, possibly from the kind of 1960s onwards. And he's working harder and harder and harder. And he's spending less and less time at home. He's probably having a few affairs, but I don't think Betty was particularly bothered about that. But he becomes a much more distant and to some extent, colder, moodier figure. And she was baffled and very hurt by this. And in later life, you know, cast around for an explanation of, you know, and he would do awful things like he would kind of belittle her in public and, and things like that. She came to think that it was all to do with his rediscovery of his Judaism and that he somehow blamed her for not being Jewish. Mm. It's an explanation. It's not an explanation that completely holds water as far as I'm concerned. I think that, it, you know, as I said before, he, he backed himself into a corner. He backed himself into a corner where he just somehow couldn't have relationships with anybody anymore. And what's painfully sad about that is that she went off and spent dedicated so much of her time, you know, researching the Holocaust and, yeah. and yet, you know, to try and I, I suppose win him back. One of the fascinating things that comes up again and again is, is uh, you know, talking about small quirks or, or ways of understanding this character was his eating, an extraordinary approach to food. I mean, in fact, one of his children tells you or I think tells somebody at, at a dinner my father has an eating disorder. And he sort of ate half the turkey at Christmas, ate food off people's plates. Is this sort of something that came up in a lot of the interviews that you did? 
Yeah, I mean, you know, if, if you look at photographs of Maxwell as a young man, he's an incredibly good-looking, slim man. And then he kind of essentially just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And he would eat in this kind of way that he himself felt that it was all to, a reaction to the war, whereas he once, he, he once told someone that he'd been so hungry during the war that he had to eat a dog. Um, I mean, a dead dog, presumably, but still a dog. And he would kind of gorge himself on food. And in a way, it becomes, you know, for me, increasingly, I felt as I was kind of researching the book, that the story of Maxwell's life is like a morality tale of someone for whom nothing was ever enough. And you feel, you just I just had this strange sense of him kind of constantly reaching for this sort of indefinable something that was going to give him a measure of fulfillment and contentment. And he never got there. And I think food became a part of that, actually. You know, it was a kind of a, an attempt to plug a gap. Moving to the sort of end of, of things and, and everything did essentially unravel quite quickly. Tell us about that, that the whole edifice, you say, of his whole empire started to crumble and fall. And you realise all the way through it's very flimsy and never really much substance to what he had because he was essentially always moving money around between different parts of, of businesses, wasn't he? And then, of course, uh, taking a lot from the pension funds. Yes, that's true. But except that, you know, he was a very successful and indeed prosperous businessman, in, certainly in the, in the early 1980s. And then he does this kind of crazy, disastrous thing in 1988. He pays an insane amount of money for the American publishers Macmillan. I mean, he pays a billion dollars more than the company's own directors think it's worth. And the reason he does that, to quite a large extent, is because he was desperate to go toe-to-toe with Rupert Murdoch in America. And the problem was that a recession then hit, interest rates went up, and really from that moment on, he was, as it were, robbing Peter to pay Paul. And the cracks steadily start to widen. And yet at the same time, he can't stop buying things as if, you know, again, one more thing is going to uh, make it all right. Uh, so he buys, the, he buys the New York Daily News and is in the um, beginning of 1991. And it's treated like this absolute conquering hero in New York. Uh, and people break into spontaneous dancing in the street when he buys the paper and he goes into the most fashionable restaurant in New York, French Chinese restaurant in New York, and all the diners stand up and give him a standing ovation. I mean, it's just astounding. But by then, really, it's all beginning to kind of disintegrate. And in the course of the next six months, it becomes unsustainable. And so when Maxwell goes off on his final trip aboard the Lady Ghislaine in end of October, beginning of November, November 1991, very uncharacteristically goes on the boat on his own. It's the only time he's ever done that. He'd always gone, I mean, there were staff there, but he'd always gone with a kind of, you know, retinue of mirror executives or guests and people like that. On this occasion, he goes on his own and they cruise rather aimlessly around kind of the Atlantic and the Canary Islands for a few days. Maxwell seems to be in pretty good mood. 
but he's due to fly back to London on the morning of Tuesday, November the 5th, 1991. And he knows that he's, he's going to be effectively be facing three firing squads when he gets back to London because the fraud squad are after him, the banks are after him for repayment of loans, and the mirror pensioners have found out about the hole in the pension funds. And in the early hours of November the 5th, about three o'clock in the morning, he disappears overboard off the back of the Lady Kilane. And his body is found the next afternoon. And to a large degree, because there's a, a very badly botched autopsy, it's hard to ascertain just what the cause of death was. So there was, you know, there was bound to be a lot of speculation about what had happened anyway, but speculation really runs a mark because of the, bo- the botched autopsy. I mean, yes, you... Well, just to finish, because I've got to ask questions from the audience, but you've obviously looked into that death, which is still to this day speculated about, you know, the pe- some people think that it was uh, a murder. That's something you you dismissed, obviously, the either suicide or accident. As you say, the first pathology was botched. The second pathologist would have said he, he thought it was suicide, but there are some dodgy sort of doings around that possibly too. Yes. I mean, with all your research into what happened, and you do describe it in great detail from speaking to the crew or, or reading about what they said in the book, what um, did you decide? Well, I mean, I cannot categorically tell you what happened. You could just as easily make a case for suicide. Rupert Murdoch, for instance, was absolutely convinced, is still absolutely convinced that Maxwell committed suicide, that he knew the game was up and just couldn't take it anymore. But you can create an equally strong case for saying that it was an accident. My own feeling, which may sound like a terrible cop-out, but nonetheless, I do actually believe it, is that the line between suicide and an accident may be rather less clear cut than is generally reckoned to be the case. And my feeling is that the answer lies somewhere along that line. What do you mean by that? Do you, do you mean perhaps... I think, he, I think he might have, you know, he might have tried to commit suicide and then changed his mind, which is certainly something that does happen. He might have had an accident and not tried as hard as he might to save himself. So I mean as it were, indistinct in that sense. And just for my final question, you end the book. I mean, is, this, is it true, really, that the Murdoch current boat is the Lady Lane? Yeah, I mean, I went to see Rupert Murdoch in New York. I mean, to my astonishment, he agreed to see me. And as I was leaving, he said, oh, you know, this extraordinary thing. Um, a few years ago, his second wife, Anna, was looking to buy a yacht and their son, James, apparently is quite a keen sailor. So he said, well, I'll help you look for something. So he found this boat called the Lady Mona Kay, which she liked the look of and they bought it. And it was only, I think, a few months after she'd bought it that they found out that it had been the Lady Ghislaine and um, that the name had been changed after Maxwell's death. And to me, it was like the kind of ultimate illustration of just how closely their fates were entwined. Extraordinary. Um, uh, I'm going to uh, ask some of the questions from the audience, which are, uh, there's a few, and I hope we get through as many as possible. Somebody says, 
What insights did studying Maxwell so closely give you with regards to bought influence, con artistry, illusions of power? The difficulty is that Maxwell is such a kind of specific and peculiar case that it's difficult to generalize from his life. But I, I, and yet, I think the, the overriding feeling was that I remember when I was a child, my mother always used to say to you, people take you at your own valuation in life. And Maxwell valued himself extremely highly. And all kinds of people thought, yes, okay, well, he values himself extremely highly. I'm going to value him extremely highly too. Therefore, I'm, you know, like all these city people queuing up to lend him money, half of whom had been, you know, saying what a terrible wide boy and a crook he was a few years earlier. So essentially, chutzpah will get you a hell of a long way. So it's the sort of fake it till you make it um, yeah. embodiment. Somebody said, talking about believing in yourself, uh, a question is, do you feel that Ghislaine's seeming belief in her own invincibility and immorality is akin to those of her father? Or like, I, I don't know how much you can say on that, but... I, I mean, I'm, you know, Ghislaine doesn't really, I mean, she does figure in the book because, you know, there's stuff about their upbringing in Eddington Hill Hall. There's deliberately not much about her and Jeffrey Epstein because I felt that it could just easily skew the whole narrative. I think that possibly, I mean, she was Robert Maxwell's favorite child and he certainly obviously named his boat after her, which in many respects was certainly one of his most treasured possessions. I think he possibly felt that she was more like him than any of, any of the other children. And he may well have been right. There's a sense you write about that they were always trying to make up for what you talked about earlier, this, uh, the beginning of her life being so overshadowed by the death of Michael. I think when she was three, you write that she sort of walked in and, and sort of pronounced, I exist to try and you know, make herself known. Well, that, that's her mother's account of what happened. And her mother does say that because she'd been ignored as a child, because, it, because her early years had been so overshadowed by what had happened to Michael, her brother, they felt guilty about it and showered her with attention. And as Betty said, you know, uh, as a result, she did become very spoiled. But, you know, whether she stayed spoiled, I don't know. There's somebody uh, asks about Maxwell's relationship with the Russians. We didn't really touch on that. I heard they said that research suggests that the Russians were responsible for his death because he was going to report on some of their criminal activities with him. I mean, the, the, job, the job is that, you know, there are quite possibly a long line of uh, people who would have been quite happy to have bumped Maxwell off or to have seen him bumped off. Mossad are usually the kind of leaders of the queue. Uh, then there are the Russians, weirdly, the mafia are also kind of cited from time to time. I think actually, you know, Maxwell had very good contacts with, I mean, he had far, far better contacts with the Russian leadership than any other British businessman. He did a hell of a lot of business in Russia. For me, the idea that he was bumped off just didn't stack up for one very simple reason, which is why would anybody, Russians, Mossad, whoever, go to the considerable expense and trouble of sending a kind of group of amphibious hitmen out to the middle of the Atlantic to tip him into the ocean. When Maxwell was so addicted to self-publicity, virtually walked around with a target pinned to his forehead. I mean, you know, it was the easiest thing in the world to, to, to you know, assassinate him on dry land. So there's, to me, there's just an, absurd, an absurdity factor. 
Somebody asks whether you think Maxwell would be viewed as more or less of a villain in today's culture. Well, I, I hope that he might be seen a bit more sympathetically. I mean, you know, he's routinely even now referred to as a monster. And, you know, serial killers have a better press than he's had. And, you know, yes, he did, uh, you know, he did some dreadful things. But I mean, and, you know, I'm not saying this is, I may feel differently if I was a mirror pensioner. But I think, you know, I remember when I, again, when I first talked to Ian Maxwell about the book, and I did say to him, look, I, I can't, you know, I don't think I can alter people's perceptions of your father, really. But I, I do want to try and humanise him, which I've tried to do. Did you feel that the children, did Ian, did, were they, is that what they hoped for the portrayal, that he would be humanised? I think they hoped that he would be seen in a more positive light. But that's an uphill struggle, frankly. Just as somebody says, he owned... Um, is it true? So he owned, he owned Derby County and famously attempted to per purchase Manchester United. Did he have a genuine yeah. football interest? I don't think you touch on this in the book, but... Or no, I didn't really, because it was... I mean, yeah, well, actually, uh, he bought Oxford United, which was his local team. And he ran it quite successfully. And, and in fact, Ian Maxwell uh, was, was the chairman of Derby County. He did try and buy Manchester United, but never really came to anything. And he also tried to buy Watford off well off Elton John at one stage. Did he have a genuine interest in football? I think up to a point. I mean, he certainly wasn't fanatical about it. But I think that he'd recognised, again, before quite a lot of other people, that there was there was there was more money to be made out of football than than had been thought for a long, long time. That he could monetize it, basically. Can I quickly ask before we finish, because there is time for me to ask about one thing that we didn't touch on, which was Maxwell and his bugging of all the phones, really, of almost everyone. I mean, he he got incredibly jealous and, and bugged all the phones, I think, in the mirror office, hmm. all his employees. He employed uh, a gentleman called John Pohl to come in and do that. It's quite an extraordinary operation. Well, he he had become very paranoid by then. So he wanted to hear what people were saying about him. But he had also fallen in love with his PA, who then went off and subsequently married uh, the Mirror's foreign editor. So he was more interested in their phone conversations than any other ones. But yeah, it's, it's certainly a symptom of him losing perspective. And, you know, he would just sort of sit up in his apartment in, in Maxwell House listening to these tapes in the middle of the night where he couldn't sleep and watching old Clint Eastwood movies and kind of gorging himself on Chinese takeaways. It's a pretty desperate, poignant portrait. I'm sorry to end on the sort of desperate part, but, <laughs> but thank you so much. And there are so many stories when you talk about his obsession with his PA. I mean, it's all, it's all in, in the book, so people can find out more about it when they read it. And, um, uh, and I should say that if you want to sign up to the How To Academy Plus and then hear other talks like this, you just go on, you can go onto the website and the How To Academy website and find out more about that. But thank you all very, very much for signing in. And John, thank you very, very much for giving us this insight into such an extraordinary and, as I say, fascinating man. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. This week's podcast starred John Preston and was presented by Hannah McInnes. It was produced by Luke Naylor-Perro and myself, 
And the rest of the team includes Dana Outcolt, Esme Bright, Sam Algranti, John Gordon and Jonathan Gordon. If you enjoyed the show, check out our interviews with former Prime Minister Gordon Brown, Mary Portis on the future of business and Katrine Marcel on women and innovation. Until next time, thanks for listening. <laughs>